Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, coming to you at the end of a week where geopolitics are reaching something of a crescendo of meetings, speeches, sideline discussions and intensive face-to-face meetings after two and a half years of pandemic-restricted Zoom calls. Firstly, there's the 77th United Nations General Assembly meeting, arriving in the wake of Russian President Vladimir Putin's not very ambiguous announcement of a massive call-up of reserve soldiers, not seen since World War II, as well as a threat of using all the weapons at his disposal in his quest to conquer Ukraine. Now, the last couple of days at the United Nations General Assembly have been dedicated to giving every member nation of the UN their 30 minutes to make a speech on the issues that matter most. Here's some of what US President Joe Biden had to say in his speech. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The five permanent members of the Security Council just reaffirmed that commitment in January. But today, we're seeing disturbing trends. Russia shunned the non-proliferation proliferation ideals embraced by every other nation at the 10th NPT Review Conference. And again, today, as I said, they're making irresponsible nuclear threats to use nuclear weapons. China is conducting an unprecedented concerning nuclear buildup without any transparency. Despite our efforts to begin serious and sustained diplomacy. Of course, he also had some things to say about China. And we will lead with our diplomacy to strive for peaceful resolution of conflicts. We seek to uphold peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. We remain committed to our one China policy, which has helped prevent conflict for four decades. And we continue to oppose unilateral changes in the status quo by either side. And what did China have to say in response? We don't know yet because it's Foreign Minister Wang Yi's turn to speak on Saturday, Hong Kong time. We're going to bring you a special episode early next week of the contents of that speech, as well as what he had to say to his American counterpart, Anthony Blinken, when he meets him in person this weekend. Of course, many are wondering if this relationship without limits between China and Russia extends to Vladimir Putin threatening Europe with nuclear war. Here's what Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who's also in New York attending the UN, had to say about her conversation with Wang Yi. I've actually said this publicly before and my private comments were consistent with my public comments. And I'll, I'll make those again, that you know, China is a great power. China is a P5 member. Uh, China has, uh, like all of us, uh, signed up to the UN Charter. 
uh, we believe, uh, as does every country, uh, with the exception of Russia, that Russia is in breach of the UN Charter through its uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and we encourage China as a member, a P5 member with a special responsibility to uphold the UN Charter uh, to use its influence to end the war. But it's not just an historic and crucial General Assembly of the United Nations in session right now. You'll hear from my colleague Kushbu Razdan on the cavalcade of top-level diplomatic meetings happening in New York this week, because there's also meetings for the BRICS nations, the Pacific nations, as well as the Quad, that unique intersection of American, Japanese, Australian and Indian interests. And after we fly into New York, we're whisking you off to Uzbekistan. Last week, we previewed the meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This week, we're headed to Samarkand to hear from Tamua Umarov about how Russia's war in Ukraine has led to the nations of Central Asia to turn their backs on Moscow and open their hearts and minds to Beijing. Quick reminder that Kazakhstan has a nearly 5,000-kilometre border with Russia to its north and a 2,000-kilometre border with China to its southeast, as well as significant resources of coal, natural gas and uranium, while their neighbours on their southern border Uzbekistan are rich in oil, gas, coal and uranium as well. You're going to find out why there's a very good reason why Xi Jinping made Kazakhstan his first destination for his very first overseas trip in two and a half years. And speaking of two and a half years, today is the day the Hong Kong government announced, finally, the end of its controversial hotel quarantine policy. So fasten your seatbelts, it's up, up and away. Kushbu Razdan works in our North American Bureau and is based in New York. Kushbu, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jared, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on board, Kushbu. You have had, as we say, a very full dance card the last couple of days with the UN General Assembly and a multitude of other meetings going on. Can I just start with the latest? The UN Security Council met your time in New York this morning what happened there? What was of significance? Oh, well, uh, India-China rivalry was at full display. At the United Nations Security Council meeting this morning, uh, India took this opportunity to attack China uh, for not allowing the U.S. and India to sanction uh, Sajid Mir, who India claims and the U.S. also claims that is a terrorist and has been involved in the 2611 Mumbai attacks in 2008, which killed almost 300 people. So India took that opportunity and uh, you know criticized China for blocking that attempt. And just a few hours after that, that heated moment uh, at the UNSC, uh, we see uh, uh, External Affairs Minister of India, uh, S.J. Shankar and uh, Chinese State Council and Foreign Minister Wang Yi are sharing, uh, you know, posing together uh, for a BRICS photo op. And it was a very awkward moment when these two uh, diplomats stood next to each other, wearing a thin smile, very awkward, not looking at each other. And it reminded me of the moment when, uh, you know, just last week when President Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Narendra Modi were, were seen ignoring each other at a photo op at the Shanghai Corporation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan. 
Uzbekistan. And that chill that we saw in Uzbekistan has, you know, it, it has been carried forward by these diplomats here in New York because they have been avoiding each other. They have been having these separate uh, diplomatic engagements with different envoys and uh, ministers from different countries, but they have not been meeting each other and they have specifically stayed clear of each other's path. And there has been no bilateral meeting planned between these two diplomats to talk things out, to talk about the border issues that continue to plague their relationship uh, since 1962. Kashbaru, I've got to say, with everything that's going on in the world right now, with you know Pakistan underwater, with Vladimir Putin threatening, not very obliquely, the use of nuclear weapons, for India to pick up on, of course, it was a very significant moment, but 14 years ago, a terrorist attack as the thing to talk about at the UN Security Council is quite interesting. But as you say, last week we saw a mutual chill between Narendra Modi and Xi Jinping at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Uzbekistan. It's interesting because both the countries sort of have a similar approach to Russia right now. They've refused to condemn them at the Security Council. They're both buying discount oil from Russia where the rest of the world has got sanctions on it. What lies behind this chill? It's not just this terror incident and this alleged terrorist. Surely that is the main sticking point in the relationship between China and India. Exactly. So uh, about Russia, I uh, I think uh, it's very evident that both India and China are walking a very delicate line. They're walking, they're trying to strike a very delicate balance on Ukraine. You know, they want the world to give diplomacy a chance, but they are not directly condemning Russia for what, what's happening in Ukraine. So they're walking a very fine line here. But, you know, the relationship that India shares uh, right now with Russia is very strong. It has been historically very strong. Historically, India has always seen U.S. with suspicion and caution. And uh, just today, uh, you know, uh, the Pentagon said the U.S. has been giving weapons to Pakistan, which India considers something unacceptable. And U.S. uh, just gave F-16 fighter jets uh, fighter aircrafts to Pakistan and Pentagon today came out and said that it has nothing to do with our partnership with India and they announced that uh, India and the US will be developing drones together. So uh, it's very interesting because India is still a democracy. The US considers India a democracy. So that status as a democracy, uh, you know, continues that relationship between the US and India. But with China and Russia, things are different. So we have to also remember that India is pushing very strongly for a permanent seat at the United Nations Security Council. And for that, India needs Russia. And for that, India needs the US. Because China will never support India's bid for for UNSC. But if Russia is on board, there is a chance that Russia can tell China to support India for that bid. There was a meeting this evening, the G4 meeting between Brazil, Germany, Japan and India, all four nations trying to get to help each other get a permanent seat in the UN. So this whole chill between India and, and China has definitely impacted the re- the relationship between India and Russia. And Russia has a bigger role to play here, not the U.S. The U.S. cannot mediate between India and China. Russia can. And you talked about what is behind this chill. So uh, in 2018 and 2019, uh, both President Xi and Prime Minister Narendra Modi held informal summits. There was a 
you know, there was a sort of euphoria. People were extremely excited on both sides that finally we're going to have some resolution to the border issues. But that ended in Galvan Valley 2020. 11 soldiers from Indian side died, four soldiers uh, from the Chinese side died, and things have plummeted to a level I've never seen uh, before, you know, after 1962. So uh, it, it is definitely the border issue. You have to understand that Modi needs internal support of his people. He does not want the opposition to attack him for something like China. He does not want to look weak in front of China. He does not want to be called weak by his own people when it comes to China. So he wants to maintain his strongman image so for that, he, he has to be tough in front, of, if in front of his own people when it comes to China. So the, the, the chill that we saw in Uzbekistan was to, to tell his own people, it wasn't for China, it was for the Indians to, you know, to show that, see, India can stand up to China. We are, we are maybe militarily not that strong as China. Maybe economically, we are not as strong as China, but we are getting there. And I think what was interesting, Kushbu, was that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw reports that both the PLA and India's military had withdrawn from these contested areas, this line of actual control, as it's referred to, in the Himalayas. It looked like both countries had entered the, you know, a period of detente about this region in the lead up to these meetings in Uzbekistan, these meetings at the UN. But that's not quite the full story, is it? What's happened with this withdrawal of military forces from both sides of the line of actual control? There have been reports that... uh Indians living along the LOC are extremely angry with the Modi government, and they have been accusing the Modi government of actually giving away the land uh, to the the Chinese side. Uh, uh, They claim that the land that India patrolled before the 2020 clashes uh, has not been given back to India. And in fact, Indian troops have retreated from that land. So uh, that 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 controversy remains, but Indian government has has been completely silent on this. There is no official uh, word on that from either side. It's only media reports claiming that villagers around along the LOC have been angry, and there has been muted but very harsh criticism of uh, Narendra Modi's policy of retreating. Over the years, there have been reports that China has been nimbling away these, you know, bit by bit these this this region which was patrolled by India. India a long time back, but China is building highways, getting infrastructure in those areas, and the villagers are unhappy. But there have been no uh, official uh, confession or acknowledgement of any uh, of these um, reports. So we, we have to be very cautious when we say this because we don't have any official um, confirmation on this. There are so many other meetings going on in New York, including the BRICS meeting, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. What can you tell us about that? Uh, the foreign ministers of these five countries met today. And uh, this is where uh, Jay Shankar and uh, State Councillor and uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, uh, you know, sat next to each other. So uh, nothing much came out of that meeting, actually. And um, as Jay Shankar called it, it was a casual uh, general gathering of foreign ministers. But uh, the most important part was that Wang Yi and Jay Shankar were in the same room and they decided not to talk about their issues. And all the five countries uh, came together and said that we are going to reform multilateralism. And that's, that's the thing that caught my eye, that everybody's talking about reforming multilateralism. So what does it really mean? As we all know, UN as an international organization is struggling, uh, fighting these, uh, you know, 
charges that it's useless. It's fighting. It's fighting for its legitimacy. It's relevance. It's it's a lot of people call it irrelevant. Why? Why is it that so? So when all these world leaders convene in New York, they all came to New York. They had a lot on their plate. They had Ukraine war. They had environment, energy. You know, one issue that everybody's talking about and remains a major talking point in New York is is the China-U.S. tensions. You cannot get anything done on a global platform when these two superpowers are not in alignment. So when you talk about reforming multilateralism, so everybody is talking about, are you in the West camp? Are you in the, are you in China's camp? So I think when you talk about reforming multilateralism, it means that we are not in anyone's camp. So this is my understanding of reforming multilateralism that uh, U.S. will not tell us what to do. But it's very interesting because when you see india is a is a is a us ally these days and it's very interesting how jay shankar holds this meeting today uh, the brics meeting today and then he goes to a quad meeting tomorrow <laughs> and that is that is very interesting we will talk about it well, yes indeed you know this term strategic ambiguity is i guess more commonly referred to the us stance on taiwan but when we talk about strategic ambiguity, surely uh, India uh, is one of the greatest proponents of that, uh, not only being part of the BRICS, attending the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Uzbekistan, but of course, being a member of the Quad, which was, you know, this sideline sideshow uh, years previous, but has now been elevated to almost a, a military alliance. This meeting with the Quad that's coming up, what do we know about that? There is no official word on what's going to happen, but um, they have so much on their plate. When we talk about Quad, it's just not about uh, forming a military alliance or countering China's influence. They're talking about things like climate change, things like cybersecurity, infrastructure. They're talking a lot of things at, at once. And a lot of experts have said that they cannot do everything at once. So if we talk about Quad's achievements so far, what has Quad achieved in terms of even countering China? There is a Pacific Forum coming next week. So I think that would also be on the uh, on the agenda. We talk about China and the Indo-Pacific. We talk about the Pacific Islands. And then there's this new group of Australia, Japan and India. So what are they doing in that group? How are they connecting with the Pacific Islands? And what is the strategy to really, you know, get those, those small islands who really worry about climate change a lot? They worry about their security and they tell the U.S. and the West not to tell them what to do. We saw that with Solomon Islands. So what is the strategy with India and Japan, uh, you know, trying to get those small nations on board? So uh, that could be one of one of the talking points uh, at, at the meeting tomorrow. But Right now, we have uh, we have no official word what they're going to talk about. But talking about this very full agenda, Wang Yi is going to stand up at the United Nations General Assembly on Saturday, so tomorrow our time. But there's also a meeting between Wang Yi and his American counterpart, Anthony Blinken. What do you know about this meeting? What's the build-up to this particular meeting? Everything became so heated when when uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and China decided to suspend all cooperation with the U.S. So I think the first indication is that China is ready to reopen lines of communication. 
So that is the one thing, one takeaway that we can take from this. So just going to meet him, just going to, you know, meet each other, just deciding to sit down and talk things is, I think, a good sign uh, because China decided to suspend all 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 cooperation with uh, with the US after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So that is one sign. And also, I think, you know, it will also be an opportunity for both sides to decide how to, you know, responsibly take this geopolitical rivalry. Uh, this would be their moment to sit down and and tell each other like, OK, we are we, we are competitors, but how do we take this rivalry in a responsible manner? Because it's just not about you and me. It's about all these other small nations who are connected to us. So they have to sit down and talk about how to deal with their competition, how to deal with this rivalry. And it's a good sign, I feel, uh, to open the communication lines. But I think it will also be an opportunity for uh, for Wang Yi to uh, respond to what uh, President Biden said yesterday. Biden became the only second president after Ronald Reagan to talk about Taiwan and one China policy and and the you know U.S. explicitly lay out U.S.'s China policy at a UNGA address. So it was Ronald Reagan between 1985 to 1987 when he talked about Taiwan's economic success, mainland's economic success, and how it was impacting the U.S. and their bilateral relationship. Biden yesterday became the only second president to explicitly lay out what is U.S. policy on China. And I think it shows that how important uh, it is for the U.S. to... To, to really tell the world that this is our stand. And that's what I'm saying, that it's not ambiguous anymore. Well, Kushbu, it sounds like you've got a extremely busy weekend finishing after a very busy week in New York. You've got the United Nations General Assembly, the Security Council, the BRICS meeting, the Quad meeting. There's a lot going on. We'll look forward to seeing your reports and analysis on SEMP.com. Where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm Kushbu228 on Twitter. And we'll see you on social media as well. Kushbu Razdan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Timur Umarov is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and right now he's in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. Timur, thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I, I love being on this podcast. Can I take you back to last week? From where I saw things from here in Hong Kong, the international media coverage of Xi Jinping's visit to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan focused mostly on the meeting of Xi and Putin and their language about the war in Ukraine. But you've been publishing extensive analysis about Central Asia and China's increasingly dominant role in the region. So can I ask you, how has Russia's war on Ukraine affected the geopolitics of Kazakhstan? Yeah, this is something that we, um, as Central Asia experts, struggle here, is that so many uh, attention is paid to what other countries are doing in this region, what are you know big powers, um, what interests they have in this region, and stuff like that. But uh, there is so little 
attention to what's really going on in, inside of this region. And uh, thank you for you know inviting me and uh, to uh, put Central Asia on the spotlight. Xi Jinping, for the first time since the start of the pandemic, choose to go to Central Asia um, as his foreign uh, visit. And um, actually for Central Asia, it was you know an important moment considering that right now so many things are changing in the geopolitics of uh, the region since the start of the war in Ukraine. And when we talk about Central Asia, we should understand that although these five countries are um, much more self-sufficient, much more, you know, really independent uh, than ever before. They still depend economically, uh, politically, and uh, in other spheres on Russia. But uh, this dependence is not uh, something that, um, you know, Central Asian countries like. It's like a burden. And everything that what they do in their foreign policy for the last 30 years was to uh, kind of find other alternatives to their dependency on Russia. And of course, when you have this enormous border with China, um, this is uh, logical that uh, China would become this, uh, you know, first um, alternative that comes to mind to Central Asian countries. And when China shows that there is not only kind of demand in Central Asia for finding this alternative, but also a supply from Chinese side, Central Asia uh, feels empowered that um, in, in this moment of crisis, um, it, it has uh, this alternative in China and that Central Asia is in China's priority list of its foreign policy. So that what um, Xi Jinping's visit meant for Central Asian countries. Were there specific announcements that Xi Jinping uh, and the Chinese delegation made for Kazakhstan that really rang bells for you to, to indicate you know, China really moving to replace Russia as the, the major great power in the region? So to begin with, I wouldn't say that China is ready to replace Russia. We are talking here about China's growing presence in the region is becoming more visible. It's uh, becoming more and more influential, but um, it's too early to talk about um, replacement of Russia or even rivalry between China and Russia. Beijing and Moscow still see their own bilateral relations as a priority and they wouldn't spoil it uh, because of their overlapping interests in Central Asia. But I would say that for the first time, China hints to Russia, that uh, Central Asia is uh, something pretty different. In, for example, that Kazakhstan is not Ukraine. When Xi Jinping came to uh, Kazakhstan, he highlighted uh, this message that China supports territorial integrity and sovereignty of Kazakhstan. This statement out of context would have seemed like classic diplomatic uh, statement that China does with many other countries. But considering that right now there is a war in Ukraine and the main reason for Russia to start this war was that Russia doesn't recognize Ukraine as a sovereign state, it means that China kind of sends message to Moscow saying, hey, Kazakhstan is not Ukraine and it's not coming out of nothing. Um, there were several 
statements from the hawkish side of the Russian government that Kazakhstan is not an ally uh, that Russia needs at the moment. And that, you know, there were even some calls to denazify Kazakhstan as, as well as Ukraine. Um, and, and Kazakhstan is very concerned about that. So Xi Jinping pointing out to this particular moment um, is very important for Kazakhstan. Timur, one of the other big announcements was that after 20 years of negotiation, Beijing has signed off on the china kyrgyzstan uzbekistan railway. What's the significance of this? And am I reading too much into it, the fact that it basically cuts Russia out of that east-west rail link that China has spent so many years building? This um, railway um, has been... Um, in discussion between these three countries for more than 20 years right now. And to be honest, at this at this point, um, no one really believes that uh, we will see this railway come into a reality. But um, since, you know, uh, these three countries have uh, started um, these talks and today the context in which these countries leave right now is is completely different. Russia is a toxic country that no one wants to work with. And, you know, um, it's even very difficult for business to work with Russia right now, considering that transactions are, you know, very painful and uh, logistics, um, everything is so much more difficult to to work with Russia. At the same time, um, you have Uzbekistan, which is much more open than ever before and ready uh, to, um, you know, become this hub for um, Central Asian region and especially for uh, Chinese trade going from this part of the world to, to Europe. This also didn't wasn't um, on the table earlier uh, when we had the first president of Uzbekistan, Islam Karimov, who didn't want to open up Uzbek economy. Um, and also at this moment, Russia is uh, much more weak than ever before. Earlier, uh, there were thoughts that for Russia, it's, it's not something that um, they want to see. Uh, they want to be a, a monopoly in um, this logistical sphere of Chinese trade with Europe. Now, Russia's bargaining position is, is so much lower than ever before. And um, if earlier we could have uh, thought that Moscow can veto and, and block any decision making in the region, uh, now it doesn't seem so clear. So this agreement that has been signed about railway from China to Uzbekistan through Kyrgyzstan has at this moment much bigger chance to come to a reality than ever before. And just to take you back to Kazakhstan, ever since February, the world has been focused on Russia's war on Ukraine. But in January this year, Kazakhstan underwent a violent crackdown on protests Do you think this was what Xi Jinping was referring to when he said countries need to be aware of a colour revolution? Yes, this definitely was uh, why Xi Jinping in the first place decided to 
uh, come to Kazakhstan, um, in my view. Many, many right now uh, think that kind of Xi Jinping first trip to Kazakhstan is kind of a reaction to what's going on in Ukraine. But in my view, it's actually a reaction to what happened in January. Um, and if we go back when uh, enormous protests uh, were happening in uh, Kazakhstan's biggest city, Almaty, and there were different signs of uh, attempts of coup d'etat, when we look at what was the reaction from uh, biggest neighbors of Kazakhstan, we would see that Russia was on the ground. Russia actually have sent um, its soldiers to Kazakhstan and um, was involved into the process of stabilization of the situation. And at the same time, China didn't even understand what is going on um, on the ground in Kazakhstan. One day, the uh, MFA spokesperson would say that it's domestic issue and no one should get involved. The other day, you would see that um, MFA's statement is that it is an attempt of external powers to create a cultural revolution in Kazakhstan. So uh, China looked very weak compared to Russia in January 2022. And I think what Xi Jinping wants to do with his visit and Putin Central Asia on the spotlight of China's foreign policy is um, to change China's presence in the region and not to just pure the region with money, uh, but also to understand what's going on there. Um, and this understanding, this knowledge would lead to uh, China's better and more precise ability to influence the domestic issues there. Timur, you've watched closely the announcements and the development of the Shanghai Cooperation Group over the years. This year's meeting seemed quite significant, not the least of which was because it's the first since the pandemic you know, began. Do you see this as Beijing creating its own rules-based order, its own sort of version of the EU or even the UN. What do you see from this going forward, looking at the number of nations invited? You know, Iran has just been uh, added to the to the core group. There are so many more observer nations. What do you see for this going forward? Yeah, SCO is uh, becoming bigger and bigger, but um, we cannot say it's becoming better. SCO, when when it first appeared on the map as as an organization, it was just five countries um, who uh, were China, Russia, and three Central Asian countries: Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And the main goal of this organization at that point was to solve territorial disputes after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Central Asian states couldn't do it alone with China because you know, because of the difference in the balance of power. And they, at that moment, needed Russia to help even technically. Imagine Central Asian countries at that point, they just got independent and they didn't even have diplomats, um, translators, um, because everything was during Soviet times um, concentrated in Moscow. So when we talk about Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization at that point, it had a clear goal and it reached it and, and we can call it successful organization. But since that moment, countries started to invite others. Um, SEO expanded dramatically. And right now it, it lost its goals. No one knows what is the real aim of this organization. 
that's why, in, in my view, SEO at this moment doesn't have a real ground for changing anything in international relations. Under the SEO, countries have, have never agreed on something very important that will uh, change the situation regionally, um, let alone globally. Um, so there were different plans to um, create an, a bank under the SCO, which didn't work, an educational kind of connectivity system that didn't work. So countries try to think about what SEO can really do, but they um, struggle and uh, cannot really think about um, the clear goals of the SEO. With years, uh, Russia has been uh, using SEO as, a con- as an organization that would somehow prove to the world that Russia is a really great power. Look, um, it has its own organization with so many countries. But in, in reality, this organization is just a club uh, where different leaders of mostly authoritarian countries come together and have this safe space where they can talk about what they're interested in and not be criticized for you know, um, human rights or stuff like that. Well, it's interesting you refer to it as a club. It seems that one of the club members has become distinctly unpopular. Timur Umarov, thank you very much for your analysis. And we're, of course, watching what you publish online. And I see Central Asia is getting a much bigger role in the very near future. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's all for this Equinox edition of the China Geopolitics podcast. You'll get the reporting, the analysis, and the video of everything that happens at the UN in the next 24 hours at scmp.com. And a reminder, we're aiming to bring you a special China-UN episode as early as we can next week. Follow our SCMP political economy team at SCMP Economy on Twitter. You can find me at J underscore what. Stay safe, stay informed, stay in touch. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.